teen eating disorders have exploded in the pandemic, and the mental health crisis facing our youth is at an all-time high. Now more than ever, we need to ensure that home and school are places that intentionally decrease, not accidentally increase, risk. And it's never too early or too late to start. The Full Bloom Project helps groups of parents and school professionals rethink how we talk about bodies, food, movement, health, and social justice to ensure we all plant protective, body-positive seeds in the next generation. To learn more about our workshops, email us at info at fullbloomproject.com. I'm Zoe Bisbing, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. Today's season four finale marks the 86th episode of the Full Bloom Podcast. I'm reflecting on the wide range of topics we covered this season and am filled with so much gratitude for all the brilliant guests who joined to share their knowledge with us. We talked about all the various ways diet culture shows up in schools, how physical education both helps and harms, and how through everyday activism, we can effectively challenge bias, shift the conversations about food, nutrition, and bodies to keep our kids emotionally and psychologically safe. We talked about raising adventurous, competent eaters, the important role of play and patience in helping kids learn to accept new foods, and also how to manage family feeding when we, the grown-ups, are running on empty. We also talked about executive functioning skills and how we can raise organized, self-sufficient children and debunked the myth of laziness. We covered eating disorders, how to detect them early, and how to effectively intervene, and dug deep into the landscape of body-positive adolescent health, the health benefits of demedicalizing fatness, weight-neutral approaches to diabetes, as well as ways to increase our own body-positive self-care practices. If you haven't listened, I encourage you to work your way through this most recent library. And if you have listened, I encourage you to go back and listen again. There is so much wisdom in these episodes. The podcast will go on hiatus for the duration of the summer and will launch season five in September. I've already begun recording new episodes and I promise they will not disappoint. I am looking forward to slowing down a little bit this summer so I can spend some quality time with my family and, honestly, myself. The conversation I'm sharing with you today was recorded back in January of this year with Dr. Helen Eggers, the founder of an innovative new telehealth platform for children under the age of 14 and their families called Little Otter. Though it's been many months since I recorded it, Something Dr. Eggers shared has been on my mind every day since. She shared a staggering statistic about the positive impact on children when we, their grown-ups, take care of our own mental health. I love what Dr. Eggers is doing to destigmatize pediatric mental health challenges and heartily agree with her statement, there is no health 
without mental health. So I will leave you with this rich and illuminating conversation about the state of childhood mental health, what to do when your online parenting guru's tips aren't feeling like quite enough to support your child, how to evaluate when your kid needs a mental health day versus a mental health assessment, and so much more. Here's my conversation with Dr. Helen Eggers of Little Otter. All of my research in early childhood mental health, which started 30 years ago when we knew so much less, and is how do we characterize the full range of emotions, behavior, et cetera, so that we can empirically define when things are in the normative range and you still can need help with that or they're preventive interventions, et cetera. And then when and how do you recognize the way I call it is when to worry is my phrase for that. And it's one of my problems with um, just the focus on social emotional learning. And I'm like, Mm. that's a great preventive intervention. And that's fantastic. But Mm -hmm. that is not going to address the needs of a child with an impairing anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, and it's similar with resilience, actually. I have a figure from my work, it's replicated multiple times, that with each additional traumatic stress, and this is kids two to six, the uh, you know chance of having an impairing mental health disorder doubles. But once you get to five or more, 100% of those children have an impairing mental health disorder. And it's not because they failed to be resilient. They were yes. in an environment and had experiences that no human, no organism <laughs> can remain intact. And I, and I think that those two sort of the when to worry, but the idea that things happen to people or you have a biological propensity or whatever. I mean, and there are multiple factors, but that's a big thing I want to get away from in Little Otter, which is the, well, you must not have done your parenting strategies if your kid has depression, <laughs> you know, and it's like, or an eating disorder or whatever it is. And I think yes. that's little otters comes from my extensive scientific and child psychiatry work, but also as a mom and my second child um, has a rare autoimmune brain illness called autoimmune encephalitis. And so mm. he's first got sick when he was 13, 10 years ago, and it's been a very long journey, but it really, the experience of being a mom, one, my privilege, because I obviously wasn't attending at Duke, et cetera. I think he's alive because I was his mom. I'm like, this is not what bipolar disorder presents like. And in fact, had really crazy eating components, again, that mm-hmm. were psychodynamically interpreted. And it's also why I'm so focused on proper diagnosis because my kid presented with psychosis uh, rapidly and mental status change over 24 hours. And it turned out, you know, when they always say, if you hear sound of hoof beats, think of horses, not zebras, but it's like, sometimes they are zebras and my, you know, and that's that similar thing. Like my kids having tantrums and biting and doing stuff. Sometimes it's like, this is what three-year-olds do. That's a horse, right. you know, but sometimes. Sometimes it's not. And it's not. I actually, I actually really love that you brought us here. I will also share that one of the things I'm really careful about with even talking about eating disorder prevention, right? Yeah. I'm doing air quotes 
It's exactly what you're saying, because what I also know as an eating disorder practitioner, that we do not know empirically, we do not know that that parents cause eating disorders. We don't know that. We do know that parents can increase risk or decrease risk. You could do all the right things and still have a kid with that genetic propensity or whatever who develops an eating disorder. And then we know that parents can actually be an enormous part of the treatment, right? So I'm always walking that line of talking about prevention, what you can do, but really sensitive to the fact that, yeah, you could do all the right things and still have a a problem. And one of the best things you can do is learn how to notice if there's well, a problem. Well, that's the key thing. That's, I mean, and I'd say that's a big part of Little Otter, I mean, a full range, but is to empower families to have the knowledge to be able to not know the answer, but know when you need to seek a partner or a person or a doctor Assessment, or whoever yeah. to, to help to answer that question. And that's the, you know, and that, and we do know a lot we we don't know that much about actual etiology. We don't know, you know, right. evidence-based treatments, la, la, la. But we actually are pretty good at assessment. That's, right. you know what, which is an interesting thing. And obviously you don't want to just say, be like, ooh, yeah, there's a problem. Who knows what to do about it? But, but I right. think it is something we can share with parents because, and particularly in my area of early childhood mental health, people don't even know that, the rate of impairing mental health disorders in kids two to six is the same at older ages. It's 15%. It's a different pattern of what the disorders are and that changes with development. But it's like, yeah, these things start early. We're going to circle back to all of this, but yes. let's, we're in Omicron, like it's 2022, 30 yeah. of this bloody pandemic. What is the landscape of children's mental health in the pandemic? Because you're sharing helpful statistics, but what do we know? What should we know about yeah. what the numbers look like now? Yeah, right. So the first thing is that we were in a child mental health crisis before the pandemic started. So we know that one in five children has an impairing mental health disorder and at least 50% and probably more do not get any kind of mental health care. And so this is before the pandemic. In addition, it's very hard to get actually good quality evidence-based mental health care. So that's the landscape uh, that we were already in when COVID started. And there's absolutely clear evidence now from my perspective that we have seen a real increase in a variety of mental health symptoms, anxiety, very much so, depression, eating disorders, and others, but those have been very, very, very prominent. And this is not only true with teenagers and uh, sort of middle school age kids, but we did a recent study, it's actually being published in the next month, where we surveyed over 700 families who have kids two to 12 years old. And we did a social emotional screen using the validated measure. And 80% of the children were at high risk Uh, for anxiety or depression. 60% were at risk for social challenges, which makes sense. Children have missed out on the capacity to build relationships and learn. And a really fundamental thing to realize is adult and parent mental health is as affected as children's mental health. 
And we know that parent mental health has a huge impact on children's mental health. So that's why the work we do at Little Otter is family focused. When we think about a child, we don't just think about what's happening to that child. We look at the whole family and we provide care for children and for parents and for couples, because we know that there's so many factors that influence kids' mental health. I talk at Nazem about the oxygen mask on you before your child kind of metaphor. And I feel like I'm seeing it everywhere. Like all the sort of pop psychologists, everybody's talking about at this stage of the pandemic, you got to take care of you, like focus on you because that's one of the best ways you can help your kid. I wonder, just because I have you here, can you give the listeners a sense of how important it really is, like our own mental health as it relates to our own children's well-being? Like, can you give us a, a real sense of that? Absolutely. So prior to the pandemic, there's clear research showing that if you treat a parent's mental health, so an example could be a mom who's depressed, that even if you don't interact with the child in any way, that treating the mom's depression will have a positive impact on the child's symptoms. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. In the study that I shared that we did, we looked at all the ways that COVID was impacting the family. We did a Mm -hmm. 16-point scale. And when there was more COVID impact, there was increased parent anxiety and depression. There Mm -hmm. was increased child emotional and social problems. But here's the thing. We looked and we did, it doesn't matter what the statistics are as a path analysis, that actually 30%, one third of the impact of COVID on child mental health was mediated by parent anxiety and depression. So what that tells me is it's so important that we treat children's mental health problems, but in many ways, we're not going to be able to give children the full help that they deserve and need if we're not addressing the parent mental health issues. So as parents, you know, we've shared, you have three kids, I have four, it's, And then I can't even imagine in the pandemic having young children and there isn't even enough time in the day, right? So I think part of this is like, what, I'm supposed to go do yoga? Are you kidding me? I'm like, I I can't, like, could I take a shower? That would be awesome. (laughs) So I, I think that the point I'm making in this discussion, Zoe, is really as a psychiatrist, self care is beyond taking a break, having a cup of coffee, taking a walk, those things are really important. And if you are experiencing really significant anxiety and depression or other symptoms, getting help for yourself, getting therapy for yourself is a form of self-care, obviously, and good for your health. And it's going to help your children. And that is something I I feel like, again, in our study, half of the parents, half scored in the high range of clinically significant anxiety and a quarter scored in the high range for depression. I mean, those are just huge numbers. 
And they're also not surprising when you think about how beyond, beyond all of this has been for people. But it's an interesting uh, thing to remember that just because it's seemingly now so common for parents to be at such capacity that they are meeting criteria for anxiety disorders and mood disorders as, you know, just like, I guess we could call some of these adjustment disorders, but like, geez, right? Like this is just because it's common-ish now does not mean that you should shrug it off. Well, these are real mental health disorders, anxiety disorders. These are treatable conditions. And so if you had your doctor say, wow, we're having an explosion of diabetes, but lots of people are having the diabetes. So just live with it. We would think that was silly. So I, I think it's very important that the fact that this is so common now, it doesn't make it more trivial. And look, the other thing is, there's so much shame around mental health challenges. Yes. They yes. Are, mental health challenges are common. Right. <laughs> These are common challenges. These are common disorders. People don't talk about it because they feel shame or other things like that. But my hope and with podcasts like this and the work we're doing is to be able to say, hey, we've got to talk about this. Totally. And and we got to talk about it because we actually have ways to help. I do think with the proliferation of telehealth platforms for adults, especially in the pandemic, I have noticed a lot of, um, and I'm in New York City where everyone's in therapy, but I have noticed that, you know, that there is this decreased stigma around seeking therapy for adults. But I think what I think is so revolutionary about Little Otter and what you're doing is that I think you're trying to pioneer this sort of destigmatizing mental health in children and also illuminate for us that it exists. So when I think about children's mental health, this word spectrum comes to mind. And I don't just mean like autism spectrum. I mean that we have like worry spectrums or right. Like irritability spectrums, right? Like, and so I want to hear from you, how can we start to, or how can our listeners start to tease out what to be on the lookout for so that, you know, we're, it's going back to what you said about the horse and zebra so that we're not projecting zebras onto our children. Right. But we're also not assuming that something is quote normal when it actually is distressing enough to our child. And to your point, you just made could be treated, right? Right. Like could actually be treated. Um, So if you could help us understand really concretely, like what, what are some of the flags? How do these things like anxiety, depression, ADHD, how do they present in young children? So I'm going to start by really um, reflecting and affirming what you said about a spectrum. I mean, I think it's problematic because when we think spectrum, it's around autism spectrum disorder. We could talk about that. But I think Mm -hmm. the way I think about it is there's always a range of different emotions and behaviors. And there's a range of what's typical, right? I mean, so that you, any of us who've had more than one child know that kids are born with their own personalities and their own ways that they 
react emotionally or behaviorally or their energy level or things like that so that we know that there's a range. But we also know that there are ways for us to identify when is something, and the term I use is when to worry. And what I mean there is, oh, it doesn't mean your child does have a problem, but what are the markers? What are the signs that might tell us, let's look a little bit more deeply and see if there is something clinically significant going on. So I can give an example, if that would be helpful about how, and this is from my research, um, but we incorporate this in Little Otter. I've done a lot of work on temper tantrums because in many ways that seems for children two to six years old, a key question, is this a typical tantrum or is this something that I should be concerned about? And what we found is that if a child during a tantrum in that age group hits, bites, kicks, or breaks something at least once during, you know, having tantrums in the last month and is having tantrums almost every day. So that's high frequency and then tantrums involving aggression. The children who have those type of tantrums are eight times more likely than children who are not to have impairing mental health challenge. But here's the thing. This is the critical thing about early childhood. Aggressive, frequent tantrums are as strongly associated with anxiety disorders, depression, PTSD, as with what we think of as behavioral disorders or Mm -hmm. things like ADHD. And so I call frequent aggressive tantrums a mental health fever for little Mm -hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. It's basically because little kids don't have words, right? And they can't go write in their journal and they can't, <laughs> you know, they don't have the ways to express when they're afraid, when they're angry, when they're sad, when they're scared. And so young children, because they haven't built these language capacities or cognitive capacities, it makes sense that kind of the end product when there's something going on is going to be this dysregulated behavior and emotion that we call temper tantrums. But I think that is an example of really what we're doing. I mean, Little Otter is built on my 30 years of research is being able to say, we can't just make up the answer, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's it. You're like, oh, if your child's having them three times a week. And it's like, well, really? But actually, you know that. And so the other thing I want to say about tantrums, and then I'll talk globally about signs, is when you follow, and we did because I do longitudinal studies, you follow the children who had frequent aggressive tantrums when they were toddlers and preschoolers, and we followed them when they were six to nine and, and then 10 to 12 those kind of tantrums predicted anxiety and depression. They did not predict behavior problems, which is really interesting. And to me, so I think the message that I would say and what I think parents can learn, it's not a checklist, but what I would want to share from the work on tantrums is to say, children tell us about what they're feeling through their behavior. So not 
to just like look at the behavior as being non-cooperative or being defiant or oppositional, but really to understand, particularly with very young children, that this is a form of communication. And in many ways, as parents, we need to be detectives like, hmm, you know, what what else is going on around here? But then if you take a step back and not just think about specific types of challenges, the things you want to look at is whatever is, is it frequent or persistent? So if your child is upset and crying because something bad happened in school and you're able to snuggle and talk it through and they are okay after that, that's not depression, right? I mean, we, or if it's the first day of school and you're going to a new school, it's going to be very expected to feel anxiety. What we're really looking for is a pattern where the child is sad most of the time. And often we're looking at, is this going on for two weeks or more? That's those, when you think about that, you also want to think about, is it happening in most settings, right? So an example I will give is a kid who's falling apart at the end of the day when she comes home from daycare. But you talk to the teacher and they're like, she is a dream. This is Mm -hmm. like, we're not seeing anything. That says, all right, one hypothesis, she's holding it together and it's hard when you're three to hold it together with a bunch of other kids. And she feels safe enough and tired enough at the end of the day to let her hair down and she can't keep it together. You want to look at, is it lasting? Is it, is it going on for a long time? But is it happening in most settings? Is it happening with most people? This is another really important thing. If a child is only having a problem with, let's say, one parent, but you're not seeing that in any of the other relationships, then you want to think maybe there's something going on in that relationship that is that is driving this. And so you might you would take a different lens to that. The other thing you want to look at is changes in things that are sleeping patterns, eating patterns, the child's interest in things that she was interested in before, energy level. So these are the pieces that when we when a family comes to Little Otter and we're trying to understand, you know, what are the different challenges, we're going to look at the specific things that are happening but but look at it more deeply with these questions of frequency, how pervasive, who are they happening with, what is happening. The other thing is really important to understand what's going on in the family and in the child's environment. So one example I would give is a child who can't sleep, like and is bouncing off the walls. There are a lot of different reasons that could happen. But you want to be sure you've taken a good medicine history because you might find out the child has asthma and got put on a steroid inhaler three weeks before, which can cause problems with sleeping. So it's very important to have the opportunity to do an assessment with a person who can really take the whole picture and it has a trauma occurred. I mean, right. And et cetera. 
So I'm having these like two different thoughts. On one hand, I'm listening and I'm thinking, this is so good, right? Because if you can start to notice these things and 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 you can know now about little otter, you could just get an assessment. You know, you can just call and and essentially as a parent, you could have someone to report all this to, right? And then the other part of me is a noticing that as one listens to this, one's anxiety could start to rise, right? Like, oh my gosh, what if my child does have a mental health issue, you know? And, and, oh my gosh, like now I'm thinking about all the mental health crises in my family and I'm projecting my own fear fantasy onto my child. And, and I see how, and I think this is where we'll, we'll get to this in a moment, but I think that this brings up a lot for parents, right? Because in an ideal scenario, we could be looking for clues as detectives. But of course, the reality is that as parents, we, we're struggling to keep ourselves regulated and we're totally. constantly, right? So it sort well, of so, makes it hard. So that's why when what we've built at Little Otter is, I call it a family mental health checkup. So if you mm-hmm. come first to Little Otter, you answer, you know, some questions and part of what sets us apart is these are actually empirically based measures that mm-hmm. you know actually are measuring a real thing. But you go through that and we actually you can get a report right away with information back on what we found and one way people could sort of for free see how we think about that is I've created these two toolkits that are free on our website. The first one was a back to school toolkit. And the second one is a holiday toolkit. And it's a five minute survey questionnaire. And then we immediately give a personalized report back around what we found, but with actionable insights, Mm -hmm. with recommendations, we have activities you can do with your child. So I think you're raising a very important point that it raises our anxiety, but really What we want to do is empower parents to have the knowledge that they need to do the best for their children and their family. And so I think some of that is being able to go to Little Otter because we don't just provide treatment. We provide preventive support. How can Mm -hmm. I best support my child's development? We provide parenting skills learning. Okay. Those are typical three-year-old tantrums, but you as a parent are saying, what the heck do I do when I'm in the middle of Whole Foods and my child is screaming his head off and I want Mm -hmm. to melt into the ground and I don't know what to do. Right. So I, I think that my belief is that real knowledge that we know is science-based and if it is shared with us with actual actions we can take that that yes. can reduce anxiety. I think it's the, I don't think it's the knowledge itself. It's that mm-hmm. feeling of powerlessness. Yes. And directionlessness. And so I, directionlessness. So I, I think it's not the information, right? Nothing's going to be helped if we hide our head in the sand, right? A hundred percent. And I yeah. think that what I really value about what you're saying is, you know, why these services are so important, even if all you do is the, is the toolkit, right? Even if all you do is, is that it starts to become a little bit more personalized. And that is really, you know, one of the things that I've noticed 
is, I don't know what the cost benefit analysis is to helping versus not helping, but there's a lot of whether they're pop psychologists or parenting experts or a lot of good eggs, you know, out there trying to, and, and with millions of people kind of congregating around them on social media, buying like their programs and workshops and really feeling a sense of like, this is my answer. Like I need to kind of get rally around this parenting expert and that parenting expert's going to guide me. And I see even in comments on some of these things, like people are really inspired and helped and supported, but going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, like it's also easy to feel, especially if your kid is struggling or there is a, a neuroatypicality or there's something different about what you're feeling. And then you start to be like, well, why isn't this helping me? Why isn't this workshop? I just paid $54 for not helping me. Or why are all these people having all these comments? Oh my gosh, you've changed my life. And yet my kid is still X. And so I think what you're saying, and I think it's so important, nothing beats individualized attention. Nothing. I I couldn't, I mean, that, thank you for saying that because that is a fundamental principle at Little Otter. It's that we provide integrated care, family focused, and it's personalized. personalized. I, I know each of us have Googled in the middle of the night how to manage, I can't get my kids to bed, right? Or <laughs> tantrums or whatever. We've all done right. that, right? But it tells you generic. It doesn't tell you what you do for my child who is having right. this trigger and in this situation. and. I think that when you're dealing with prevention or even early signs, more generalized information can be helpful, right? Yes. And, yes. and because, and, and that, and it's really useful. I'm not, you know, yes, I think I it's, it's I really, really useful, but I think that what's important to realize is when we're in a different category in terms of what the challenges are. And, and I, I know, you know, I shared about my concerns, even in supporting our children's social, emotional learning and health, which is amazing that this is getting integrated into schools. I, I think it's just wonderful. And, mm-hmm. and if you have a child who has really significant anxiety or other emotion regulation challenges, you need a different type of help and support and learning and skill building. And I think it's it's the important thing for teachers, for parents, for pediatricians <laughs> is to be able to know, you know, when it is something that we need a different type of intervention. And the sad truth is, particularly in early childhood mental health, that often what families and parents are told is, ah, wait six months, he'll grow out of it. Let's see what happens, et cetera. And I feel really strongly that if there is something that's going on, the sooner that we get help, the better the outcomes are going to be for the child Mm -hmm. and the family. And I'll give an example again from my research. I always joke like, ADHD in preschoolers, how in the world could you diagnose it? Because, you know, preschoolers are inattentive, hyperactive and impulsive, (laughs) right? Right. Right. But the thing is that children who have ADHD have seven or more 
symptoms and problems in this area. And in my work, it's only about 3% of kids. But here's the thing. People will say, oh, you don't want to label a young child, et cetera. In my study of the young children who met criteria for ADHD, 45% had been suspended from preschool at least once. 15% had been expelled from preschool. And these young children were already having major relationship problems with their parents, with other adults, with their siblings, and with peers. And to me, that is so, and as a child psychiatrist, the typical child we see with ADHD is a nine-year-old, 10-year-old boy who already is the screw up in class, right? doesn't have friends, you know, et cetera. And so I think the importance of recognizing things early is that we not only can help a child who's struggling now, but we actually prevent we actually set them up for success. And that is incredibly important. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's important to highlight that there's mental health challenges, mental illness, however you want to, whatever vibes for you. And that's different from behavioral expression of what's going on. And I can't emphasize this enough kind of with you for people because that self-concept that then starts to form, right? I'm the bad kid. That's right. I'm not even looking at research, but I know in my bones that's predictive of so much struggle because that's then what I see in my practice when I work with adults, right? That self-concept formed and this sort of almost confirmation bias flows from there. Right. And I think what's so imperative about destigmatizing mental health and especially in children is if you can identify, like you're saying, Oh, we don't want to label him or put, or, Oh my gosh, medication or, or therapy, whatever it costs or whatever we're talking about that helps in a loving, supportive, destigmatized way is so much safer than having your kid grow up believing that he or she or they is a screw up, not Absolutely. because they had treatment, but rather because their behaviors were and interpreted. And someone listened yes, and recognized yes. that they were suffering. So yes. to me, this is also... It's about having empathy for our child's experience and having empathy for parents' experience. And so that's why at Little Otter, like when you said about being personalized, that we do, we have child licensed child therapists, we have child psychiatry, and then we have parenting specialists who are there to provide support, to work with parents on skills of learning how to manage these different situations. And we also provide one-on-one support for parents around their own emotion regulation capacities, their own ability to tolerate. Like a lot of times, and I would say I feel this as a parent too, it's so upsetting to have your child be so upset. And that can trigger so many feelings of feeling powerless, 
feeling thing. And sometimes our response can come out like getting mad or, you know, stop it or doing, cause it's just, it, we, of we course. can't, we feel overwhelmed in that moment. So I think that it's just as important to provide support and empathy and learning with parents that the same way your child may be struggling with regulating emotions or behaviors, that we also have those challenges. I'm not calling that mental health disorders. I'm just talking about being able to keep our stuff together when the world is blowing up around us or when our kid is, you know, really pushing all of our buttons. That being able to do this for your child really depends on you as a parent also feeling supported and held and also recognizing that life is messy and nobody's perfect. And we're just every day, just, you know, if you screw it up, which we all do, that you get another chance and that we can apologize, we can repair, we can try to do it differently the next time. And I think that takes it away from this black or white, have a disorder or not. This is really, yes, there are that, but still this is around how do we support all of our mental health? And mental health is a positive thing and and learning how to manage hard things, learning how to regulate our emotions. Those are lifelong skills and projects that, that all of us, all of us, are learning and supporting each other in learning and practicing. I couldn't agree more. One of the things that I love about your work, I found it somewhere in, in when I was uh, getting to know you a little bit, was your recommendation to give mental health days to kids. Yeah. And so I wonder if we could end with you telling us what they are, why you think they're a good idea, and when we should be able to tell or how we could tell the difference between our kid really needing a mental health day and our kid really needing a mental health assessment, just like a little nugget. I think that's a great, yeah, absolutely. So I think the idea of mental health day, it's, and particularly, I think this has been true in the pandemic is recognizing that we can be having experiences where we just are getting overwhelmed and we just need a reset. That's the what how I would think of a mental health day. It's it's uh when you or your child is feeling this sort of frantic, you know, can't even sort of rest or get centered, that that can be a way to really support your child in being able to just take a breath. But I think what's important, a mental health day is not like sit alone in your room all day. I mean, you could be watching a movie or things like that, but the way we get centered isn't just being by ourselves. We do it through relationships and support and connection and feeling Mm -hmm. held by another person. I feel like that's important. I also think that it's very critical not to confuse supporting your child from avoiding hard things with a mental health day. Like Mm -hmm. not good uses of a mental health day would be if your child is developing school refusal. And I'd say that's true for anxiety in general, 
And there's obviously you can get help and how to do this. But when we support our children's full avoidance of the things that are scary, we are giving the message that, yeah, that that is really scary. Yeah. It's so you, scary. Yeah, you can't it do is, that. You can't do that. This is yeah. so scary that I'm going to you right. know, support your feeling that you can't handle it. So it's enabling. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the way I'd like to end and thinking about this, and it relates back to parent mental health is that when we model for our children, ourselves taking mental health days or breaks or afternoons, you know, where we're like, I'm going up and taking a bath. Uh, dad's going to be doing this. And I, you know, and set very clear boundaries and then mm-hmm. truly don't just go clean up your bedroom or something else <laughs> or look at your to-do list, but right. really similarly create a space. The way I think about it is to let our nervous systems get to calm yes. down, to center yes. and not, that would be a measure. Like if I was thinking, is this doing what I hoped it would be? That yeah. if everyone isn't at a high alert, emotional, yes. just high pitch, but can really not be as reactive and not have that beating like day heart. A soothing, it's like a exactly. soothing practice day rather than playing hooky, which exactly. Comes with, and so that's where fun, but breathing, yeah. relaxation, walking in nature, you know, I think those to think a bit around what things heal us and center us and enable us to be present would be how I would think about a successful mental health day. I'm going to start implementing those in, in my family. When I saw you talking about that, I I thought this is, how come I didn't think of this sooner? Thank you for listening to the Full Bloom Podcast. For more body positive nurturing content and conversation, you can find me on Instagram at Full Bloom Project. Special thanks to Davis Lloyd, Christina Regal, and all of you who helped support the Full Bloom Project by rating, reviewing, and sharing these episodes. See you next time.